The College Game Day podcast is presented by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. Coaches gone wild and ones who don't understand irony. How important is it to be able to count to 11 and the best team in the best conference might yield big results come college football playoff time? This is the College Game Day podcast for Monday, September 25th. Reese Davis and Pete Thamel here after a fascinating weekend, not only on the field, but in post games, where coaches lost their minds, uh, did hilarious things at their microphone, if you really think about it, Pete, and started giving us a little insight into all of the motivational buttons that they are willing to push. So I want to be very clear about this. I love the petty. I embrace the petty. I want the petty. I want these coaches to say exactly what's on their mind. If Dan Lanning did his pregame speech and said, team, we're taking it one game at a time. We're going to take it one play at a time. and We're going to be 100% focused against Colorado. Guess what? That would not be very fun. If Ryan Day, after, you know, looked to touchdown Jesus, blessed himself and said, we respect the Holy Notre Dame and all your forefather coaches, that would not be very fun. Uh, you and I have been lucky enough to spend a lot of time around coaches, Reese. They are petty creatures who complain about each other, <laughs> mock each other, and poke at each other constantly. And when we get a little peek into their souls, we should embrace the peek into their souls because they are wondrously petty creatures and they deliver that resplendently and relentlessly on Saturday night. Okay, let's go through a lot of these. And <laughs> the most fascinating one is Ryan Day. But I want to start with Dan Lanning because first of all, there were a couple of things about that <clears throat> that pregame speech that struck me. The first one was a lot of times when in television we ask the coach, can we shoot your pregame speech. A lot of times they get very nervous. They say things like, we'd like to be able to review it. I'll have someone watching you make sure we're sure about what gets out and what doesn't and all of that type of thing. Sometimes they do. Other times they just say no. Other times they water down the speech. But in this case, Dan Lanning said, yes, put that television camera right there because I think that's my good side and make sure you don't miss this. And then he just premeditated he just petty premeditated. Just it. He just <laughs> said it. The other thing too, that you should have had a hint that it was coming on game day Saturday. I referenced what he had said about Colorado leaving the PAC 12 prior to Oregon's departure and saying, what have they ever won? What have they done for this conference? I'm paraphrasing here. I used the direct quote on Saturday, but basically then after Colorado go off to a good start, most coaches would have said when asked about it later, well, at the time we were emotional and, you know, we didn't know what the future was and I've got great respect, which he did, by the way. He, he did give Deion Sanders his due for what he had done while at the same time going, yeah, I don't regret anything I said and I'm not taking it back. No matter what you guys do to try to make me want to take it back, I won't take it back. And by the way, put that camera right here and make sure that, that your focus is good because I'm about to say something to America, and to the recruits, and to my fans, and to my players, and and it was great. And for his and to his credit, Deion Sanders responded perfectly. Awesome! They whooped, they whooped us, and you better get me now. This is great. 
these these are these are good things and it was uh it was pretty funny you know the other thing you're in that ad agent world and i know phil knight's locked him up i'm not trying to lobby for dan lanning to get some other job but i see that and then i see the performance i'm like yeah okay i know he's only been a head coach for a year uh see if we can get that dude you know i mean that's that's a good that's a good resume reel for dan lanning too it was a bit of a coming out party as a personality for Dan Lanning. Dan Lanning has a good personality. Some of these coaches who come from under the Kirby Nick thumb where they are they are muzzled except for some like Tuesday morning at 830 in March before spring practice seven. And that's the only time they can talk. You, you don't really get to know them like you might some other coordinators. So I really feel like that felt like for Dan Lanning, that was the first those are some of the first real windows into his personality as a competitor that we got to see. And I thought it was a great thing. But you said the absolute key word that motivated all this to me, Reese. You said the word recruits. Dan Lanning rolling there on the West Coast. They're the flashy program. They're the hip program. They've got the alternate uniforms. They're buzzy. Old Dion comes to town and the, the, the carnival moves south to Boulder. And Oregon's, instead of battling USC and Washington, all of a sudden, Colorado's in the mix for the best players on the West Coast. So I think old Danny Lanning, more than anything, more than to Dion, more than to his fans, more than anybody else, wanted to say, you know, when you when you fake punt on that, uh, well, glorious fake punt, by the way, uh, on your on your minus 17, you say, hey, like, don't forget where the show really is. The show is in Eugene. The, the, you know, the, 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 the noise and the bluster in Boulder, but if you want to win, you come. And, uh, to his credit, they didn't score in the fourth quarter, um, cause he really could have, uh, he really could have done that, uh, and, and really ra- ra- railroaded them. But I felt like it was a statement game for Oregon in so many ways. It was a statement game for Dan Lanning and his young head coaching career in so many ways. And I just, I enjoyed every, every second of the premeditated petty. And also, and we're going to stick on this because this is the most interesting thing that happened that weekend, that and not being able to count to 11 uh, on defense at Notre Dame. But I do want to offer this aside. Taylor should Taylor or Sarah should check me on this to make sure because I, I can't recall the name off the top of my head, but I believe the lad who ran with the fake punt from the Ducks, I believe he was a product of the Avon Old Farm School for Boys, was he not? Always comes back to the winged beavers, Pete. I think I could be wrong about that. If I am, they're just going to edit it out of the podcast, which will be tremendous. Why don't you give their like catchphrase again? And by the time you do that, uh, I can look that up. Um, can you look it up? Okay, it's not a it catchphrase, finest? Pete. It's a motto. <laughs> it, and you're talking about what I say, which is finest school for boys in all the land. That's that's just me saying that. The motto is aspirando et perseverando which is aspire and persevere. Avon Old Farms via Nebraska. So we, we, get, we, 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 we check off two members of the podcast with Casey Rogers' uh, tra- uh, trail through academia. Okay. Here, and, and the other one that garnered a bunch of attention this weekend. You know, I'm worried, very, very concerned about Ryan Day and his reaction after that win against Notre Dame, which, you know, was for political fans in some moments felt almost Howard Dean-esque um, in, in a lot of yelling. Um, but I'm very concerned because of this. I'm not sure 
Ryan was certain uh, what the target of his anger should be. Because I'm not certain that Ryan knew exactly what he heard. Because what Ryan responded to in the aftermath was a quote that he attributed to Lou Holtz from the Pat McAfee show. But if you stop and think about this, at the moment of the quote, Lou Holtz's original article was being interviewed by Lou Holtz. Woo! I mean, how, how do you tell the difference? There was, there was somebody there, Ty Schmidt, who was dressed up as Lou Holtz with a mask, doing a magic trick, a dead-on impression. Was it Lou Holtz that said it? Or was it fake Lou Holtz that said it? <laughs> so does Ryan, was he so discombobulated by dual Lou Holtz's that he became confused and misdirected his anger? Does he really know at whom he should have been angry? Or what, Or was it that he was really mad at Jim Harbaugh and took it out on Lou Holtz when he should have been mad at fake Lou Holtz, or did he take it out on fake Lou Holtz when he should have been mad at real Lou Holtz, when he's really not mad at But, you know, really, I don't really blame him because I remember um, after Michigan beat after Michigan beat Ohio State for the first time, and if you'll remember, uh, Ryan Day taking aim at Lou Holtz was right and made just as much sense as when Jim Harbaugh said after beating, after beating Ohio State, Where's Woody Hayes? Where's Woody Hayes right now? And saying that I only went for two because I couldn't go for three to score 50 points. I'd like to know where Woody Hayes is right now. So, you know, I think probably that was the same, made about the same amount of sense, which, okay, the last part didn't happen. But the truth of the matter is it made about as much sense as if Jim had yelled, where's Woody Hayes? We showed him. So the beauty of the Ty Schmidt, Lou Holtz on Lou Holtz interview was that not only was it like comedically compelling because it was a longtime impersonator interviewing the person he he uh, he imitated, but it was also a really good interview. Like Lou Holtz said a bunch of stuff. Like that's the the mind bending part to me. Ty did an unbelievable job. Like he had said it was like a bucket list thing. There was obviously a lot of pressure. Everybody was busting his chops this morning. You know that morning that it was his day. But he actually executed a really like thoughtful interview amid like a comedic bit, which was very hard to do. So I want to give Ty a lot of credit. Really good. Plus he was like had to be sweating with that like mask on. It was hot out. Like, yeah. make, like it's not a comfortable scenario to uh to, to do that with, with the pressure. Uh but I, I will uh sort of reiterate the, the the tenor of what I said before. Like we really like got to see who Ryan Day was a little bit in that interview. Like Ryan Day is a fiery competitor and I do think there was pent up frustration with the criticism that his program's taking for two years. And, you know, like he let it rip. The funniest part of that interview was after the first two questions, Catherine Tappan asked him about like the final, uh, you know, the final play at the end. It was a great question. And he goes, all right, let me take a deep breath. He goes, okay, we have two timeouts, far hash left. And like, he just completely changed <laughs> into, like, into, into coach mode. Well, it was like, it was like, whoop. He, uh, he, he went from there. But I just thought, like, you know, it's again, what do coaches really think? Uh, clearly, that bothered Ryan Day. Clearly, he took a, you know, a rock of criticism. It wasn't a pebble. It was maybe a rock of criticism and turned it into a boulder of criticism. And that's what coaches do. They take any 
any small slight, any small knock, any small thing, and then they just blow it up. Um, one of my earliest career memories, uh, Reese, was interviewing Urban Meyer at Utah. And this is really going to date me because I think it was 2004. And we're in his office and he stops the interview to listen to the Mountain West Coaches Conference call. And they were playing Wyoming that week and Joe Glenn was on the call. And he just called in like, you know, the guy from the Laramie Tribune would do and took notes on what Joe Glenn said. And I looked up and I was like, why did you do that? He goes, oh, he called our corner short. I'm going to go in the locker room today and I'm going to tell our corners that that coach and like he took like, you know, their corners are undersized and he took that into like, you know, they, they got a bunch of midgets turn around out there, whatever. You know what I mean? Like it was never, it never was, mind the fact that the corners were five, seven. Yes, right. Exactly. No, and the corners were short. Yeah. Like, so it's it's just like the, the the way these guys are wired and, 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 and how they work. So I, I will say this. It was completely compelling. To, to watch unfold live, you know, like for him to pivot and go, uh, where's Lou Holtz? I was like, whoa. And then I was like, he's talking about Ty's interview. And, uh, I just thought it was, it was great theater. And you will never ever hear me say coaches should be more boring or more buttoned up or not say oh, no. exactly what's on their mind. Like, so good for Ryan Day. Obviously an emotional cauldron, a great game. Um, a great finish, a great play call, quite frankly, at the uh, at the end to go at where the missing player was. Um, it's not in Ryan Day's DNA to punt, and it's not in his DNA to run on like the biggest play. So I thought it was there was there was some cool stuff that uh, that happened there, and yeah, it was a uh, that was that was a that was a fun night of college football in South Bend. And there were also two egregiously bad decisions. We're going to get to Notre Dame and that debacle, which it wasn't, according to what I've read, wasn't the first time that had happened to them this year. And I, I thought the uh, the fly sweep or the jet sweep on fourth down that Ohio State called was egregiously bad and almost cost them the game. Um, but aside from that, I do want to go back to the other. The one thing that I, I did say, and I'm, I agree with you a thousand percent, Whenever coaches do things like this, it gives us fodder for the podcast. It gives us things to talk about on College Game Day the next week, which we will. <laughs> and it also gives you great insight to who they are. But never let it be said, because you have, when you are in the public eye, and they are much more so than, than broadcasters or reporters, but we get some degree of this to some level, uh, you might say, we get a little bit of that. Whenever we say something that doesn't align with what a fan thinks of their team, we get some of it, right? And it is difficult if you are a person who wants people to like you and who wants to get along with people uh, not to have rabbit ears and thin skin. But I will say, I did denote that we were talking in that post-game interview about toughness and you know, task at hand, fighting. And yet in that glorious moment, we're responding to an 86-year-old man who hasn't coached in two decades and hasn't been on TV in a decade with the exception of being a television guest, which he just was. And he responded to, um, you know, to the interview that we outlined earlier with an impersonator doing it. And I was like, yeah, that's not chapter one of the toughness book there. 
You know, that's that's not chapter one of the don't have rabbit ears, uh, you know, book either. So, look, I've liked Ryan Day and, you know, the whole Ohio against the world thing is hilarious because, first of all, uh, the Ohio State fans would have been pretty unhappy had, say, oh, I don't know, Notre Dame either A, had 11 people on the field on defense for the last couple of plays, or B, while I didn't mind the play call, if Sam Hartman had maybe just uh, just eaten it on that waggle, forced Ohio State to use the timeout, then had the 10-second runoff at the end, then it doesn't happen at the end, they would not be on Ryan Day's side in Ohio against the world. They would be on Ohio's side against Ryan Day. So, you know, all of this stuff is fun and, and I enjoy it, but so beautifully fragile, isn't it? It's just also fragile, yeah. right? Like it's just it that's what makes this sport so ludicrously great. Like <laughs> Yeah, you know you know my disdain for Coachy McCoacherson stuff. The you know, the quintessential we're gonna play him one game at a time, you gotta be tough, and I don't care if you run a six eight forty if you want it. If you just want it more than the other guy, we'll get it. You know, all that stuff is, you know, hot garbage. But uh, that that is one thing. While I do mock this and think it's hilarious that in that moment of glory, that that's where Ryan Day's mind went. I, I find that hilarious. That there's also an element of, yeah, I'm not seeing the toughness there. You know, <laughs> you know, we're talking about we're talking about an 86 year old legend who. Full disclosure here, I have a close personal relationship with, you know, so initially I had to step back and think about it for a minute because we try to be honest on this podcast. You try to be, you know, a real person in the moment. It hit me a little sideways, but then when I took a step back, I was like, you know why it hits you sideways? It hits you sideways because you love Lou Holtz and because of my personal relationship with him. How many years did you do TV with Lou Holtz? Like 10, right? Uh, with, with, with 10 years. Yeah, 10, yeah, 10 years. years. That's we, a long time. We still maintain. The, yeah. It is. It's long, I, my standard thing whenever I'm speaking at something with Lou is that while I never w- even approximated the ability to play football at Notre Dame or Arkansas or South Carolina, North Carolina State, or William & Mary, or any of the other places, Minnesota, any of the other places he was, um, that the advantage I have on every player who ever played for Lou Holtz is they only got four years with him. I got 10. And, you know, look, the thing that you know about Lou is that, and Ryan knows this too. I mean, it hit him sideways because of a multitude of other things. But the thing you will know about Lou is that his blindingly loyal love for Notre Dame, he will, no matter who they're playing, convince himself that they they cannot be beaten in that arena. That's sort of how he coached, and that's how he was on TV with Notre Dame every week. Even you know he would come in on Thursday, you know, maybe uh, maybe on Saturday when we would leave the show, and Notre Dame had I don't know whoever SC the next week. Uh, we'd leave on Saturday night, and he'd say, "Oh boy, you know, Notre Dame's going to be in trouble. They cannot you know stop the run, whatever it might be." But by but by the weekend when he came back. He'd walk in and barely a hello, and he'd give you a list of four things of why Notre Dame's going to win the football game. You no, know, Notre Dame's going to win the football game. And, uh, you know, so that was like on brand for him. And that's why when he said it in the moment, it didn't really resonate with me. But it came became apparent by late Friday afternoon that in Ohio State quarters, this was not a surprise that it had bothered Ryan Day. The only surprise was that he that he went public with it. So, but anyway, that was interesting. Yeah, it felt to me Lou's 
Lou's interview was almost like what he would have said to the Notre Dame like pep rally, right? You know, like it was like that yes, type of yes. material. I don't think exactly. he, he exactly like right. was trying to strike the soul of, you know, Ohio State's program. Like no. I thought it was no. in fact when he said it, I was like, Oh, okay. Like that's you know, that's general analysis that may not be received well. Um but yeah, I do think there was some uh accentuating of his point um to uh you know to 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 fit to fit a motivational uh narrative Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's what it was and you know Lou is very loyal to coaches he loves his time at Ohio State um you know he probably next to Notre Dame over the course of my time with him he was probably next to Notre Dame more pro Ohio State than anybody not rooting not being biased not being unfair but in terms of affinity you know from his time he coached there right he there. under woody yeah, he did he yeah he was yeah. part of a national championship staff with woody hayes in 68 um yeah. which i'll offer a quick aside and then we need to move to washington state i think um he tells a great story he was a defensive assistant and i think oj simpson early in the rose bowl um went like 80 yards for a touchdown you know busted long run or whatever and woody stormed apparently storms over to him and said you know, why Why did he go 80 yards for a touchdown? And Lou said, because that's as far as he needed to run. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, you know, he is proud of his time there. And it's, it, look, all this stuff is, is amusing. Um, Washington State also upset with Lee Corso. They misunderstood what Lee said. Uh, he didn't say nobody watches. What he said was that the nobody wants us bowl in reference to the fact that they are the last two standing in the Pac-12 two-pack, as we've been calling it. And, you know, I that's all been straightened out. It's fine. But it does show the sensitivity. And it, it sort of goes back to what you alluded to earlier. Whenever a coach says something, even if he's emotional and even if he's mad, the motivation is one of three things. It's either his job, this one, or auditioning for the next one. It's about recruiting or it's about some type of personal insecurity, either for him or for his program. And, you know, Jake Dickert getting upset at us. Again, a little ironic. I'm not sure that anybody has put Wazoo up front more than College Game Day showing the flag every week. Uh, and we've mentioned several times this year that Cam Ward is good. I'm not defending us. Jake's got, I, I'm a free speech guy. Say what you want. It's part and parcel of what we do. We say something, you get to respond. That, that's all good. Um, but it was sort of amusing because first he misunderstood what was said. And then secondly, um, you know, again, kind of ignoring all of the other stuff, but it was about defending his program, even if a, a little bit of an emotional tenor to it, which is, you know, yeah, right. It's out of the, it's out of page one of the coaching manual, I think. Yes. So. Jake also thought game day should go to that game over uh, Notre Dame Ohio State because it was it was yeah, a once okay. in a century opportunity. Which, like again, if you're selling that as a potential site, like that that would be a good you know that would be a good reason. It it's never going to be the same out mm-hmm. there again. And they're both very good, mm-hmm. like very very good teams. Yeah. Um, and boy, did they jump on them, huh? Whew, Oregon State didn't have any answers uh, yeah, early man. for yeah. for for Cam Ward, and you know what Ben Arbuckle is doing there at uh, at twenty seven. I have t shirts older than Ben Arbuckle. Um, you know is is really <laughs> uh, is really impressive. He's really turned the key and maximized uh, 
Cam Ward. But yeah, I do think like it's all fragile for these programs, Reese, that are that are kind of getting left behind, right? You're it, mm-hmm. it, it's week four, so you're worried guys are just going to come in and turn in their cleats and say, "Hey, we're going to transfer and keep our year." Right, because this is the last, yeah. you know, this is kind of the last week you can do it. So, um, if you're a coach, you got to worry about okay, do I do I spend my next two hours thinking about realignment scenarios, or do I worry about you know our run defense? So, there's I have empathy for the situation they're in because it is a little bit unprecedented to to be just sort of staring at this abyss of a future again. Can you keep your roster together? Like those are there are some big picture looming things. So I I understand some of the some of the sensitivity that that goes around that because you're just trying to you know you're just trying to keep everything together uh, if if you're Jake Dickert. But just go win games, man. That's that's all you can do. You know, job recruiting personal or program insecurity that that pushes the button you know another one that's not going to get as as much attention is and I wasn't obviously because I was I was at the Ohio State Notre Dame game but apparently according to some articles I read in the aftermath that Lane Kiffin was low talking to use a Seinfeld reference at the at the podium after they lost Alabama and it was like difficult to hear him you know, and at least according to one of the one of the articles too. So, you know, that, that was kind of a low talker, choice. though. That's not like he, stunning to me. No, in the sense yeah. of so people who've never met Lane Kiffin, and again, we've been lucky to be around him for twenty years and see him yeah. in a bunch of different visors, right? Uh, as his career has gone on, they would think he's because of his Twitter persona. They would think he's this like boisterous, loud kind of like Coach Owish character, not, right? But in reality, he's kind of quiet. He kind of mumbles when he talks, like he kind of talks like this, like he's not, he's, you know, when he was sitting in front of us at Media Day, um, you know, a couple weeks ago in Nashville, I guess months ago now in Nashville, like you're just struck, like he kind of just like speaks in a whisper. Um, He's a a smart guy. He says exactly what's on his mind, but he has just never been a a, a verbose kind of like booming talker. Like that's just not his, that's not his personality. He doesn't make eye contact a lot. Like he's just sort of a... For his the bravado of his persona, the the reality of him is 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 much meeker um, in in person. It's not a criticism; it's just a it's a contrast that people who meet him for the first time are struck by. I don't know that any of the stuff that he did on Twitter leading up to it, I sort of doubt it had much impact. I'm sure they brought it up, but in the Alabama building, I mean, about who was calling the defense or whatever. But it, it was kind of interesting when you look at at the responses. And if I missed it, I apologize. I didn't see, you know, Nick referenced it Monday and answered the question, but I didn't, you know, we didn't see any in the aftermath there. See, I told you who was calling the defense. That was a Kevin Steele production. You know, maybe he did, but I didn't see it if he did. Um, so it was kind of, kind of an interesting thing, but I, I don't want these, I don't want these guys to change. Lane is great content. He's a terrific coach. Do think he's got his hands full now because they put a lot of emotional capital and, and, and I, you know what I really admire in that post game uh, analysis that I read or post game media scrum that I read about is that he didn't back away from that. You have a lot of coaches when they lose a disappointing game um, because they're immediately thinking forward and understandably so. They're saying things like, it's only one game, it's not the end of the season, our goals are still in front of us, all of the coachy McCoachers and stuff. And Lane told the truth. Lane said, 
we thought this was our chance to get them. And, you know, we thought they were vulnerable and we didn't do it. Somebody said, well, what about LSU? Which is a gargantuan game for them coming up this week. And he said, I'm not there yet. Good for him. You know, I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, for all of the stuff that'll make you scratch your head, you go, why, dude? You know, other than making great content on game day, which I love. But you look at it from the other point, you think, why would you do that? And then you think, well, I'm glad you did because it's entertaining. But good for him. You know, in the end going, no, hey, look, you know, we'll get there, but not there. Last year, they didn't get there. They they came apart after a disappointing loss to Alabama. And a big challenge for them uh, in a big game with a lot of historic implications coming up this weekend. And joining us now to talk about all of this coaching in front of a microphone absurdity and entertainment is Ryan McGee. And Weekend Review with Ryan McGee is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of a nice cold Dr. Pepper, the one that fans deserve. What fans really deserve, Ryan, as Pete and I have been discussing for a while, is the pettiness, the thin-skinned, the you've-got-rabbit-ears moment from all of the college coaches that we got in the aftermath of uh, various compelling games this weekend. You, you spend a lot of time around coaches. What, what do you think when you, when you see them get down in the, in the pettiness and the whining and all of that type of thing? To me, it's the surest sign that, number one, we're at the end of the first month and everyone hasn't slept and right no one's eating right everyone's eating snickers bars and drinking red bulls and doing what, you know, you have a plan it's like it's like my workout right i have a plan going in but if my knee starts hurting i'm not going to do that anymore i'm just going to do whatever i can do to get through the hour that's kind of where they are but the surest sign that to me of a coach that's kind of losing the handle on things is when they focus on these things and i told this story before and and he gets angry at me when i do it but you know, Butch Jones, when he was at Tennessee, the day I knew it was over was the morning of the Georgia game. And I had this chat with him prior to the game on the SEC Nation bus. And, you know, I, I, I purposely put the microphone down, took the ear, ears out. I'm like, we're just talking. I'm a Tennessee alum. We're just talking on the bus. And it was just talking points after talking points after talking points. And they were all based on the columns that had been written about him earlier in the week. And so when you hear stories of coaches that literally, and I'm, I'm not making this up, have everything printed out that was written about them on Sunday, and they drink their coffee on Monday morning and read it, you think Nick Saban does that? Because he doesn't, right? And so when you see these guys, when you see coaches throwing writers you know, out of game, press boxes, I mean, when you see these things, it's like, what are you actually focusing on right now? And so that's always been fascinating to me is that when, they, when, they, when the quality control starts to suffer, um, is typically when the head coach has allowed himself to get dragged into something that he shouldn't have ever been dragged into. And again, a lot of it is because of the pressure, but a lot is because they're just, you know, honestly, they're sleeping eight hours a week. And so I, I cut them some slack, but not a lot of slack. It's a fine line between finding those motivational buttons, Pete, and using it which all of them do, including Nick Saban and Chip Kelly, by the way, who doesn't read anything, yep. who Chip's great about all of this. But they all will find something to use and manufacture and push the buttons. That's one thing. The other is if you're actually bothered by it. And that, that to me, is, is, is more is, is funnier, just to be honest. 
Chip had the best line in the uh, USC fiasco when they banned and unbanned the uh, beat writer. He was like, you can do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, don't, don't let him know. Yeah, don't let him know. Like, I didn't know and, you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> that was like the, yeah. the, the, perfect, uh, the, the perfect thing. Uh, Ryan, right before you jumped on, we were talking about Lane sort of low talking and lamenting um, the opportunities that were sort of uh, out there in Tuscaloosa that he felt they got let that let go. Be curious. You've been around Lane a lot, and uh, you know we've we've obviously discussed uh, you know Bam and Ole Miss and the 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 Yoda Jedi uh, relationship there between Saban and him. I'm just curious what you thought of Lane post game there and, and how he uh, how he put a bow on uh, again his pregame antics uh, outperforming the team's performance. Yeah, and and I think that he knew he had a chance, and he knew that this probably was his best chance. And, and something that really struck me, and he said this multiple times, he, he said it to us uh, on SEC Nation leading into the, those kickoffs, which is he said, you know, this you never know, this could be the last chance you have to even coach against him. And so I think everybody's hmm. thinking about what is Saban's end game. And I, I literally jumped up. I was sitting on the bus in the air conditioning because, by the way, it was 110 degrees in College Station. and and I But I literally jumped up and went, did he just say that because what he what he said was he said you never know this could be the last time and so I think Peter Burns posted a great picture on Twitter of of them walking away after the handshake and Saban's got that Saban grin on his face that he has not had this year and and even from a, a three quarter shot you know by his ear you could tell that Lane needed to just go be and be in an empty room by himself for a minute and so that kind of summed it up I think. I think Lane believed this might be his last chance. And I don't know if Lane has information that we don't, but the reality is is that I think he's thinking about, I'm only going to get whether it was one more chance or three more chances or five more chances. I don't have many more chances left to beat this guy. And I believe he thought this was his best shot. So, yeah, you have to measure those things. The Dan Lanning thing fascinated me. because, And, and, I, and I was impressed that um, a, a lot of our colleagues and uh, kept, kept, kept throwing that at Sanders. Well, he said this, and he said this, and he said this. And Sanders like, well, get me now at my lowest. But he goes, but I like Dan Lanning. You know, I think he's great. Now you got to do what you got to do to motivate your team. But I, the way all that was handled, everybody trying to turn that into a Norvell sunglasses situation. You know, we we all kind of relish it, and I'm curious to watch see how these guys handle it. And I think some have handled it very well, and and some obviously have not. Uh, we talked about it earlier, Ryan. I think that both Pete and I believe that. Um, that Dion handled it perfectly, responded yep. in kind without without backing down, but saying it. And Pete made a great point about Oregon's been the flash program and Colorado is encroaching on that territory. And that falls into the category that I said, when these coaches do this, it is almost always about job, recruiting, personal insecurity of some type. In Dan's case, it's about recruiting. In Lane's yep. case, it's about all three. The job you have and the job you might covet. I'm yeah. letting that hang there right. for a purpose. Recruiting, even if it's in the portal, and personal insecurity. So and and then the recruiting was obviously because everybody's using that, well, when when's Nick gonna hang it up against him? But all three were on display there with the with the last chance and then the the backtrack's been interesting because i think with the new sec schedules they're not scheduled to play next year which is not some great injustice they went years and years and years despite the proximity the sec schedule prior to division they didn't play a lot you know they played some and play all the time so 
um, you know, it was, it's a pretty interesting character study. Um, coaches are almost as, if you're familiar with the show Burn Notice in the open, Sam Axe, the guy who is a Michael Weston's sidekick, refers to spies. As you know, spies, and I'm not going to use the language, but he said they're, they're a bunch of whiny little, you know, whatever. And uh, anyway, yeah, complainers, yeah. that's it. And coaches fall into that category. And before you send all of your cards and letters and X tweets or whatever we call them, so too are television people for sure. You know, I mean, you, you want to see somebody get chopped up. Oh. You want to see somebody get oh. cut up, go to either a coach's convention or put three or four TV guys in a room together. You'll see some folks getting cut up. You know, that's, it's not our best quality. I'm not proud of it and I try to stay away from it, but you know, the good book says he who is without sin cast the first stone. You won't see me reaching for a rock, you know, so I'll try to, you know, I'll, you know I try not to do it but it's like much like coaches and all of this stuff it's in our dna a little bit and that's probably why uh, probably why i get such a kick out of it and you know it's sort of a self-loathing thing you say yeah i hate it when they do that oh yeah i do that too i really shouldn't do that and then you, you know, so it's uh yeah. it, it's kind of entertaining to watch i think and it's fun it gives us content yeah pete it's why we don't miss the comments section right you know, yes. <laughs> back in the day, everybody, we, everything we ever wrote, they had the comment section underneath. And, and back in the day, it's the only feedback you got. Yes. You know, there's no social. So you go through that thing and it was, and then you realize later, it's like the same four dudes that are just writing the same thing over and over again, <laughs> waiting on you to react. And then you do. And, uh, you're like, how'd I fall for that? Never read the comments. Never, never. read the comments. And uh, now I never read the comments and you try to stay away from the mentions or whatever they call it on social media, because here's the thing. When you go to, when you go to a restaurant, when you go to a store, if you don't order online, um, when you are somehow out and about and some, and you're working with someone, whether it's a salesperson or a, a server, and hopefully you leave a nice tip if they do a good job or you're kind to them, if they're helping you in a store. But how often do you go to the manager and say, this person did a good job? Now, if they, now if, look, if they went right. way above and beyond, maybe. But basically, if they do a really good job and make the experience pleasant for you, you are highly unlikely to reach out to their boss or the owner of the company and say, this person did a solid job. I like what they do. I like the way they go about their business. But... You let them come in and dump spaghetti on your plate or on your lap. You let them come in and forget two people's order at the table. You let a salesperson in a shoe store say, I don't know, look over in the rack. Maybe they're there, maybe they're not. You know, you then are likely to go, what's happening here? Why would you do this? You know, you might say something like, I don't like to be treated this way, right? Because you're unhappy because something that is unpleasant in your mind happen to you. We react that way. When it's pleasant, we don't. That's why you got to stay away from the comment section or from the replies. Very rare is the case where they go, nice job. <laughs> Sometimes yeah, the, they no, do. The, air, the, air, the airline I fly almost exclusively because I live out of Charlotte, for a while they tried to do co positive comment cards. They'd hand it to, hey, you know, so-and-so did a great job today, fill one of these out. And I finally asked a gate agent one time, has anyone ever turned these in? No. I said, well, is there, a, is there, is there, is there a, a, like a complaint card? Yes. Do people turn those in? Thousands a day. Okay. Well, there you go. That's all I need to know. So it's. <laughs> it's a human condition, right? Yep. Yep.
Yeah. But 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 the, but the thin skinness of the job, you just can't do it. And I've had this conversation with with athletes before. I remember you guys know I covered NASCAR forever, and it was a very high profile uh, motorsports figure who was going through a divorce that became very public. And he said to me, he said, I don't understand why everybody thinks this is their business. And I'm like, man, I was in, you know, a Pep Boys auto parts store yesterday, and there were three cardboard cutouts of you selling spark plugs and spring. If you don't want to do that, then it'll be no one else's business. But if you're going to take the money and you're going to be the head coach at an autonomous five program that's won national championships, then guess what? You know, this is the gig. And so you just can't be thin-skinned. And again, I go back to Saban. Saban has always been very aware of, of the per- perception of him. I mean, that's just, they all know their stats. Steve Spurrier used to say them all the time, oh, I don't know how many wins I have. Or oh. Yeah, yeah, he did. Oh, yeah, he knew right. all of it. And, but, he, yeah. but he would tell you that he didn't. But Saban is very aware of those things, but he doesn't let it get to him. Like it doesn't, if someone writes a scathing, one of us writes a scathing column or, 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 or reason if you were to say something, you know, on the big desk on a Saturday morning, you know, he might be aware of it, but he's not going to let it affect how he does his job. And so when it starts affecting how these guys do their jobs, that's when you feel like they might be losing the handle a little bit. It was funny. I didn't, uh, my wife said to me, um, that I was wait. you know, my wife, the Auburn fan said, she said, you were way too hard on Alabama this morning. And I was like, what do you mean? She said, you said that Ole Miss should be favored by a touchdown and you'd lay the points. And, I, I believe that based on what I'd seen the previous week. But, you know, I got a comment from uh, the Auburn fan and the the critic that I trust the most on that, but not a peep from Alabama on that, to your, yep. to your point, Ryan. Not, not a peep, which, yep. by the way, yep. I'll, I'll use this opportunity to say really for the first time this season, at least on defense, they looked like Alabama. So they they, they responded. Uh, you know, not not to me. I don't mean that. I mean responded to the challenge from their from their coaches. But um, Dallas Turner should be indicted for that performance. He was in the backfield. So <laughs> oh, he was yeah. great. Yeah. He was yeah. great. He, he was. Oh. he was really good. He was a no mess, doubt. man. He was whew. no doubt. What I don't I don't think we we've really hit on this the 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 coaching thing. And you're going to get some <clears> criticism. <throat> and Notre Dame deserves the criticism. It is going to get for only having 10 people on the field for the last two plays, particularly since it came out of a timeout, and particularly since it is something that had happened to them earlier this season against Tennessee State and had been ad- had been addressed. There are a lot of ways to look at it. You know, you say, well, you take the half-yard penalty, you do whatever. How about sending 11 guys onto the field? I mean, right. that's, you know, I, I talked to my kids when they were growing up about, you know, sometimes accidents happen. But there are accidents that can't happen, especially if you've had a warning sign earlier in the season. That cannot happen, and yet it did. I don't know if it cost them a game or not. Maybe Ohio State pushes it in anyway. They're only a yard away. There were other things that cost them the game. It wasn't the only thing that cost Notre Dame the game, and Ohio State should be praised for gutsy play after gutsy play after gutsy play on that last drive to keep going and eventually score the winning touchdown. But that's an accident that can't happen. You you got to have a full complement of players. That's the most fundamental thing. You you need to have 11 guys out there period. And for them to fail to do it on the final two plays of the game when it had happened to them earlier in the season is 
is egregiously bad. Out of a timeout. Right. Yes. Can't happen. Yeah. No, that, that that's the part that shocked me. And, and again, I will give I, – I, we've talked about this on this show in, in regards to Alabama. You know, most penalized team in the nation last year. Well, back in the day when Florida State was the most penalized team or Miami was the most penalized team or Nebraska was the most penalized team, those were penalties of aggression, right? That was that was hitting guys all the way to the end of the whistle. And then there are just penalties of, you know, quality control problems. And it's substitution infractions and it's, you know, illegal procedures and it's all these things that you give – I'll give you a pass against Tennessee State in the first couple of weeks of the season. But when the when it happens in this game, four games into the year, the moment has eaten you alive. That's all that is. I, I remember when I was a student at Tennessee, they started pulling out the plastic mats with the eleven <clears throat> circles on it, and and laying it out there on the field. And I remember I asked Coach Johnny Majors at the time. I go, "Is that like what's the strategy behind that?" He goes, "The strategy is these guys can't count." He goes, so we put the circles out there. So all right, 11 of you stand in the circles. If there's a circle that's empty or if there's a, a guy, there's two guys in one circle, you got too many guys or too few guys. And he goes, I can't believe we're doing this. It's October. And that's, if you have to pull out the mats, you have to pull out the mats. But, but it's, um, yeah, the, the moment ate them, ate them alive. That's all that was is somebody was someone's job was to make sure, especially after what had happened earlier in the year, someone's job was to make sure that you had enough guys on the field. I'll even give you a pass on 12 men on the field before I'll give you 10 men on the field because that's just mm-hmm. – 12 men on the field is somebody made a mistake and, and stepped out there when they weren't supposed to be there. 10 men on the field, that's just I, – I still can't believe it happened. Yeah, I think it starts with Marcus Freeman, and he's owned it and I think yep. you know been accountable for it. But I really think when you start getting into the mechanics of it – and again, <clears throat> none of the three of us played big-time college football, so we don't no. – really know the nuances of substitution patterns up up close. But I would think this is Al Golden and then the position coaches, and I would assume it's one of the many, many guys in $98 Under Armour green polos. One of those dudes is in charge of counting to 11, right? Yeah. Now, I'm not blaming that guy, but somewhere along the concert from coordinator to position coach to analyst to actual substitutions – there's been some kind of breakdown that's happened way too many times. Because I agree, there is no more fundamental thing than in coaching than getting the right amount of guys on the field. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen a team short in a moment that big in my career. I've seen too many men in it get called for. I've even seen it on special teams, maybe, where mm-hmm. like they didn't have the, the, the right amount of guys on. Because special teams, somebody gets hurt. If you, We've all been on sidelines for games. The special teams mechanics of, okay, it's third and nine. Like, how do we get, let's get everybody ready to get them counted. Like, I've been around programs where the strength coach is like one, two, three, four, and they count again, count again, and count again. And then you go to walkthroughs and they're like, okay, uh, our, our starting gunners hurt. Who goes in? Like, there's a whole concert to, you know, to the people spend a lot of time on this stuff. So it is, it is just a remarkable moment. It's like that old baseball saying you hang around, you know, you're going to see something new every day. Like I, that is not something I'd ever seen before, um, in a team, in a moment that big to be one human short. You know, what's interesting is, so you got my, my father was a field judge forever. And yep. part of a field judge's checklist is counting you know players mm-hmm. on defense. 
And and after so many years, Dad got to where he would know immediately. Even you know, if you watch, he's always counting. But even before he counted, he would be like, "There's too many guys out here." Like he could just mm-hmm. tell, or 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 sure. wait, they're short. And so that just comes with experience. And so you're still dealing with the staff, even though I mean, a guy like Al Golden has been around forever. You're, you're dealing with you know, staff members that have been around forever, but not all those analysts have, not all those graduate assistants have. Marcus Freeman's still new at the job, and so. These things will take care of themselves, hopefully, and, but with experience, it just you just you can kind of sense it, and, and and there's just not certainly at the top, and certainly on the field, there's just not that level of experience yet. But I, I can tell you this: they won't do it again this year. If they do, if they do it again this year, then they got a problem because they've done it, they've done it in secret in a game no one was really paying attention to, and now they've done it on the biggest stage that they'll play on this year. And so, uh, if it happens again, then. Uh, somebody's probably going to have to go find another job. You know what the biggest play of the game was and the biggest comeback was to me, or biggest part of the comeback was to me? The dropped interception? Well, that was big, but that's a physical error. Mm -hmm. A choice error came when Notre Dame had the ball previous uh, on the prior possession, and Sam Hartman had lost yardage on first down, and then they ran the little waggle, tried to throw a really safe pass, and it was an aggressive call, and I, I do not fault the call at all. But JT Tuimaloau, I believe, made a great defensive play, almost intercepted the ball, but it was a dangerous throw to begin with to do it. That was one of those where, especially someone with Hartman's experience, it's the only way that pass can be incomplete is if you flip it to the guy, it hits him in the belly, and he just drops it. It can't be broken up. It can't be fit into a window. Here's the reason that was important. There was 228 left, and I believe Ohio State only had a timeout left. They didn't have to use one. So it saved them some time. So later in the next drive, when uh, Kyle McCord was called for grounding and they had to use the timeout to avoid the runoff, remember that when there were, uh, mm-hmm. there were yes. 15 seconds left? If you don't have time that time, yeah. if oh. you don't have that time out there, which you would have used if Hartman had taken the sack, not only would take, not only would the clock run there, then you have a ten second runoff there. Best case scenario, you've got one play, maybe two on the third and nineteen. So I said that not to blame the play call. I liked being aggressive, and not even to blame Sam's choice to let it go. I said that because of this. Ten men on the field in that clutch moment is egregious. But there are dozens and dozens and dozens of moments in the clutch and earlier which can cost you a game that was as tight and highly contested as that one. I know that there are some who walked away from that saying, I'm not sure how good either team is. I walked out of there from watching that entire game on the sideline thinking that both of them are good. And I think Kyle McCord... It has a chance to be really good. And I was really happy to see that Marvin Harrison wasn't badly injured because I was right by the injury tent when he came in and the way he was moving did not look good. And it showed what a what a stud he is that he came back into the game. I walked away thinking those are two really good teams and the margins are so small when you play a game like that between two really good teams. Ten men obviously hurt. So, too, did not keeping the clock running right there at that time. 
So two did the dropped interception. So two did the fourth down failures that Notre Dame had by inches, you know, a couple times early in the game. All of those things add up. But, you know, so it's not just one thing. And we're going to fixate on 10 men, and it's bad enough that it deserves some uh, critique, criticism, and attention. But it's not the only thing. It's not the only thing that happened in that game. Ohio State and Texas playing a neutral field. You just saw both on the sideline up close, Reese. Who do you favor? Right now, Texas. Uh, by but how much? I may be, I may be right now would say Texas by a touchdown. Um, okay. But I might, I might sing a different tune by the time the postseason comes because by then McCord will have played an entire season. I think he's getting better, 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 better. Texas, while yours can have, you know, three quarters of the Wyoming game, he still does that. He's still he's still playing at a pretty high level overall. So I would favor Texas uh, over Ohio State right now. But I'm not to a point where I'm like, this is never going to be equal. This is never going to be Ohio State winning it. Ohio State's loaded. And as they continue, Pete, you know, I always say it's not against the rules to improve. You get to yep. improve. And I think that I think he's going to continue to do so. And the Ohio State offense will as well. And Travion Henderson looks a lot more like uh, the version we saw a couple of years ago as opposed to what we saw last year. Well, and I'm so glad Harrison isn't badly hurt because me too. Uh, you yeah. know, it, it, it's, it's interesting. And Pete knows this at ESPN.com every week. They ask us to plug in our top five Heisman candidates. And I keep Harrison in there every single week. Now I, he went out this week, but every week I keep him in there. And I get killed for it because like, what do you know? I'm like, I, I believe he's one of the five best players in the country. And I'm still waiting on, I'm glad we're not going to be robbed of, again, as the team improves, I think he's, he will let us know and remind us of why we have made a big deal out of him because he's, I, I, I number one, I just like him as a, as a, as a person. I mean, I, I went up there, spent some time with the receivers at Ohio State last year. And he just strikes you as just, he's just a good kid. We talk about it all the time, right? I mean, these guys are all, just they work so hard and they're so smart and I really enjoyed chatting with him but I'm I'm waiting on him to break out and show us the flashes that we saw last year and, and I'm glad we weren't robbed of that because that that was my biggest fear that night was and I'm watching on television was man I hope he's okay and I'm glad that it seems like he is because um I think he's the x factor you know if if if, if they can figure out a way to you know, not have the entire defense watching him all the time or, and, and slip him out of there. I think he's got a chance to he, – he could be what gets them over the top because well, he hasn't gotten there yet this year. I, I agree with you. I'm going to channel my inner Thamel right here, Pete. I was, I was uh, being like you on the sidelines uh, the other night, standing by a couple of scouts. You know who else they love? And I know you know this because of your relationship with them. They love them some Cage Stover. <laughs> they, oh yeah. Like, yeah. They're oh, like, yeah. oh, they're like, oh, he's going to be good in our league. He's going to be something. They, they're really, really high on him. So there are a lot of weapons at Ohio State. He's a nasty blocker. Like Cade Stover mm-hmm. earned his way onto the field as a pass catcher by setting a physical tone on the edge. Ohio State, for all the great teams that they've had here, hasn't had a real true dual tight end. They've had some good pass catching guys, but he's a guy who can completely come in and and mash a defensive end if he has to. And again, he's not Brock Bowers or anything, but he's going to get down the field and lower his shoulder and and you know punish a nickel or a safety trying to tackle him. Well, to me, that's the beauty of an ugly game, right? I mean, the beauty of an ugly game, like what you guys saw on Saturday was, now Ohio State knows they can win that game. 
you know, mm-hmm. they, they, they they feel confident if, if it's if it's forty seven forty three, right? They know they they, mm-hmm. they know they can keep up with you because of all these weapons we're talking about. But the fact that they know now they can get down in the mud with you and win a, a sloppy, you know, an old school slobber knocker that's that's encouraging. I think you need one of those wins in the middle. I always go back to you know the Auburn LSU game when Joe Burrow probably should have gone to the hospital and and stayed in the game. And Auburn won that game, and it set the tone for the next year and a half. And so I, I'm, I'm, I think if you're Ohio State um, and, and Notre Dame too, just know that you can be in one of those games and be in it until the closing seconds. That's that's going to serve you well when we get into December. Do we the think UCF Ryan guy is, that decleated Burrow wants more credit than you're giving him for setting the tone for LSU? Yeah, the next no, year. No, he you're wants. right. Well, yeah, he's not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a good call. But it's uh, yeah, but it, but it's uh, but yeah. Just know that you can take the hit, right? And uh, because that again, that'll serve you well come December, and it's um, you know, I think if you're Ohio State, you're and even Notre Dame, as, as hard as you are, uh, you know, on on Monday, at least you walk away knowing, all right, we were we were in the thing. Do Do we think Ryan Day might have like put himself out front to sort of you know they played fine, but they this certainly wasn't the Ohio State we know they couldn't smash it in at the goal line. There was a really bad play call on that fourth and one when they ran the end around. Do you think his post game? fervor was like you know what let's make this the story for two days and and we're not gonna we're not gonna die dive into some of some of our uh you know some of our frailties no I, you're, nope. you're disagreeing this is good i'm not i'm nodding and reese is shaking yes, so, exactly. so yeah <laughs> it was it was it was too it was too visceral and emotional to be calculated okay. in my judgment all right, all right. ryan Fair. you disagree well, I think these guys do do that to a point. I go back to Lane Kiffin, you know, in the infamous Tennessee year. He made that all about him, and part of that was because he's Lane. But a lot of that too was because he knew that team had way too much work to do. Like I don't, I don't want anybody asking these guys about what we're working on. Let them ask me. And so I, I do think sometimes it's calculated. Maybe, maybe it was somewhere down the middle. But it was, uh, yeah, I was sitting in Williams Bryce Stadium watching the Ryan Day presser, <laughs> and and I was like, all right. You know, this is, it was, uh, it was, it was, it's an interesting, I, I need, I've always wanted to sit and watch coach press conferences with like actual psychologists, like, like, like actually, and see what they have to say, like, uh, as, as they're watching these, because I feel like we could all probably get a minor in psychology at this point, because we, we've tried to break down these press conferences so much. Uh, I'll tell a quick story, and then I want Pete to make a strong point for something he's been advocating in our game day meetings, and he's a thousand percent right on it. Um, to that end, in the <clears throat> national championship game for the 2017 season, when Tua hit Devontae Smith and Alabama won it on the walk off in the aftermath, I was doing you know various hits, and Kirby Smart had given his news conference, and then Kirby uh, stopped by, and, and we talked. And then after that was over, we talked briefly, and he was handling it like the consummate pro and gentleman that he is. Obviously disappointed, obviously crestfallen at being that close to a championship and and having it get away. And he's handling everything just as you would expect, you know, from a from a coach of his caliber, you know. Showing the disappointment, but controlling the emotions. We finish our, you know, our chat. He walks out of the room where we were, and there's this big metal locker as he walked out of the room. And there was kind of no one else around except me and my cameraman, Kirby, and whoever was walking with Kirby. And just before he exited the door to head back to the locker room, 
he turns and punches that that metal locker, you know, gives it a, a big shot as if, you know, he has maintained, held it, held it, held it. Knows he's going to, when he takes a step outside that door, he's got to hold it again and be the leader. But that little moment, boom, you know, hits hits the locker and gives it a good shot. Completely understandable. Nothing wrong with it. Absolutely human. But maintain the composure both before and after, yeah, you know, sort of like the consummate pro that he is. Not yeah, that the it, other it, guys it, aren't. And I, I don't say that to cast aspersions at the way anybody handled it this weekend, just to amplify your point about the psychology and the emotions that go into all of this with all of these guys. I don't know how they manage it. I really don't. It, but because, you know, it's the only job in the world where you're judged on 11 weekends a year, 12 weekends a year. You know, everybody else gets 365 days. You, you get 12 days. And how they manage that good and bad. I always go back to last year when South Carolina stunned Tennessee and there was a shot of Shane Beamer that he he had no idea. It just so happens that their video production guy was in this room and Beamer, after all the celebration on the field with this stunning win that South Carolina had, and Beamer went into this empty room and just crouched down in the floor and just, and just I mean, just fist clenched, and eyes closed and just had a moment to himself for about 10, 15 seconds, having no idea that the camera was sitting on the floor across the room and captured all of this. But that video to me has always, you know, I've always wondered well, what would have been if they lost that game, you know, but just the pressure that they're under and the, and what they handle. We're talking about the Notre Dame game. You know, how do you handle those moments? And and then when you let a moment eat you alive like that, how do you handle the losses? How do you handle the wins? I don't – there's a reason that they're paid what they're paid. There's a reason that they have the jobs they have because I don't know that the rest of us could handle that. And so I'm, I'm again, I'm fascinated by, by, by the wins and the losses. I mean, Kirby Smart, I remember when they finally won the SEC championship, everybody's celebrating and he threw his headset down and started yelling at the headset guy. And I get, I still give him a hard time about it, but, but just, they're so, we're wound so tight. You know, I, I just, how, how they manage all of that, I have no idea. And so many of them manage it. Well, and everybody's managing well in the Pac-12, Pete. And as we wrap this up, you've said this on a couple of game day um, production calls, and you're a thousand percent right. Pac-12, I think Pac-12 best conference in college football. Opportunity, if things fall right, not only to get its champion into the college football playoff, but maybe a second participant, which would be the height of of irony, I guess, given uh, what's going to uh, what's going to happen next year? So it's a it's a wonderfully balanced year in the sport, Reese. This is like what God intended the twelve team playoff sport layout with five leagues, which we won't have for much longer, to be like they intended. You know, from literally Seattle to State College down to Tallahassee, there are contenders for the playoff. You can even throw Miami in there if you want to feel frisky this morning, right? So what, <laughs> what, what, all, like, now I feel like the Pac-12, we've all been saying all along that it's very good. Um, I do think the conversation of can they get two in has to come. I think they have a much better chance of getting two in than the SEC does right now. No ch- no um, doubt. No yeah, doubt. Question. And, and so there, there are some interesting teams that don't play each other because I believe SC does not play Oregon. If Is that right? Um, let me double. Let me double check. I, th- I think they do. Uh, I'll, I'll double check it. Go ahead. No, I'll, I'll check it. Yeah. Here. So, like, all of a sudden, Pac-12 crossovers, who's playing who and who's not, are becoming like huge parts because these teams are going to knock each other off. Like Washington's elite 
Are they that much better than Oregon? It, but they're not so elite. They're not going to lose. Um, they're not as ahead of the field as Georgia appears to be in the SEC. Let's let's put it that way. So, um, but I just feel like a, a month in, Pete, just to uh, yeah. just real quick, SC plays uh, at Oregon the week after they host Washington in November. Oh wow! <laughs> just, okay, yeah. Maybe it's because <laughs> I know SC SC plays Utah. Um, Maybe it's Washington doesn't no SC plays at Washington because that's like a potential game day uh, game day site. There's some crossovers I, and forgive me. You can see I'm not uh, I'm not as fluent as it should be because this is such a unique conversation for us to have about multiple teams. Uh, considering that the the drought that the Pac-12 has uh, has been under and Reese, you've obviously hosted many 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 college football playoff shows. The last Pac-12 team to make the playoff was was that. Washington in 2016? That's correct. That's okay. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So it's a mm-hmm. stunning turn of events that we've gone from a, for a drought, five-year drought, 17, yep. 18, 19, 20, 21, 20, six-year drought. Six-year drought. Six-year yeah. drought to at least potentially talking about doubling up. Um, it's a it's a wild, wild uh, turn. And uh Credit to everybody out there. They have, they have the best quarterbacks. They have the best teams, and uh, it's it's been it's been fun to watch. But it is there is sort of an undercurrent of sadness to it, you know, that it's last call. It's the most it's the most Pac twelve thing that ever Pac twelve. It really is. I mean, you know, I, I remember I remember I've told this story before. I remember years ago going to ACC media days, and and John Swaffer was at the podium. And at the time, we think the Big East is going to raid the ACC, and the great Calton Tudor of the Raleigh News Observer was just hammering on Swafford. And Swafford's like, listen, if we just win our cross-conference games in September, the entire narrative changes. And Larry Scott said the exact same thing to me at Pac-12 Media Days <laughs> years later, and the Pac-12 just didn't do it. And now the year they've decided to do it, it's just – it's the year that they're all walking out the door. It is. It's the. It's the most. Uh, I just. I will always wonder what would have happened because everything, whether the commissioners and, and presidents want to admit it or not, it's all about what have you done for me lately? What if they had done this four years ago? Right. What, what if they'd done this three years ago? I just. I can't imagine that it wouldn't have changed the way that everything went down. But it didn't, and uh, and we'll just have to enjoy it for what it is. But it's. Uh, it's. It, it is the most Pac-12 thing that ever Pac-12. Now, Pat McAfee made the point on game day this weekend that with the level of play in the Pac-12, it's beyond mind-boggling that they couldn't figure out a way to get a TV deal done. And I know a lot of that's yep. going to uh, fall at the feet of the current commissioner, George Klyavkov, but I think a huge a uh, huge amount of the blame goes to the previous administration as well, as well as the presidents for not understanding where they were in the moment. And it's really a shame because it's a great product. There are a ton of great teams, uh, regardless of whether, you know, Jake Dickert thought so or not. We gave a lot of attention to, uh, Beav and Wazoo and that was a great game. And we, who knows the way things are going, you might see it again. Uh, you know, they might, I think ESPN analytics said there was one in 1,133 chance going into last weekend that that's the one we would see. But given what the Pac-12 is doing so far, maybe that's the one that will, that will come home. Boys, we're headed to Duke for the first time, marking another Power Five, uh, site off the trip. Durham Bulls, 
uh, hat on Ryan McGee to celebrate this moment, I guess. That's I thought it was a Broncos hat to celebrate no, no. them giving up 70, and you were going to put them honorarily in your bottom 10. No, <laughs> no this, this, you know, well, I might still do that. I got to write that today. But, but no, but, but, but you know, I, I, I grew up in the Triangle, as you guys know. I've been to – my brother and I were talking about this last night. What stadium have we been to the most back in the 80s growing up? And I think it's Wallace Wade. In the history there – I'm trying to get him to let me write a little something about this for your show on Saturday. The history there is amazing. And, and it's, um, and I love that place so much. I ran tr- high school track meets. My dad officiated a game wearing shorts in that stadium. The AC, most ACC thing that ever ACC'd was the ACC officials wore shorts for one season and that, because it was so hot and they decided not to do it. I'll send you guys the picture. It's classic, but yeah, but it's, I love that place so much and I'm so excited y'all are going to be there because I think it's it, Sports Illustrated years ago in the eighties wrote it was the Wallace Wade saying the most beautiful place in America to watch bad football. And Steve Spurrier was hired like the next year. And so it's a beautiful place. I mean, I know I'm between Peter basketball and Reese, you and your, and your son, we've all spent so much time there. And, uh, I just love the fact that that place, uh, is getting some love on Saturday. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to be a lot of fun. I think they're going to be a little bit like the Kansas crowd, but a, a smaller student body, not exactly sure how to react to, uh, this football notoriety that they're getting, but we're, we're looking forward to it. Mike Elko will be on the show. He's a, a great, compelling, entertaining guy. I look forward to having him on and talking the week that's ahead coming up. We've had a little bit of an extended version of this Monday game day, but given uh, given the coaches losing their minds and giving us so much fodder, it was probably well-deserved. <laughs> so, Pete, Ryan, great talking to you. Uh, Pete, we'll see you on Wednesday as we turn our attention toward the week ahead. Thanks for listening to the College Game Day podcast. Easiest thing to do is subscribe so that you never miss a fascinating episode. And if You just remember these three simple precepts about coaches. Your time with me today will not have been ill spent. When they get in front of a microphone, it's about their job or the job they want. It's about recruiting or it's about their personal or program insecurity. See you on Wednesday.